So tonight's talk is about skillful effort, tough-mindedness, and gentle-heartedness. The quality of virya, or effort, or energy, is one of much importance on the path. In fact, it's said that this quality is on more lists that the Buddha has than any other quality. And it's also one that we get lots of questions about, more than just about anything else. How do we make effort in our meditation practice in a way that um, is balanced? How do we cultivate the awakened heart and mind in a way that um, leads to good results? And in some ways it's a hard question to answer because you can't really um, peg down the answer Skillful energy or effort uh, is situational. It depends on the specific situation. And since things are always changing, effort will also need to change. So it's very contextual. You could say that skillful effort is what works right now, what brings balance to our practice right now. So it requires some attention and also some discernment. This question of effort is really with us the whole path. And in many ways, it's, it's the crux of the practice because it has so much to do with how we relate to experience arising. But even though it's contextual, it's not hopeless. Um, the Buddha did give us some guidelines that will help us figure it out. And in one of my favorite sutras of the Buddha from the Samyutta Nikaya, there's a, a delightful story about this, you could even say paradox of effort. So a deva, or a heavenly being, asks the Buddha, tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood. So crossing over the flood is, um, is an expression used for to find liberation of heart and mind. So tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood. And the Buddha says, I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. And the Deva says, well, how did you cross over the flood without pushing forward and without staying in place? And the Buddha says, when I pushed forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. And so I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. And the deva says, At long last I see an honorable one, totally unbound, who without pushing forward, without staying in place, has crossed over the entanglements of the world. So in a move that is both delightful and intriguing, the Buddha didn't tell us what he did. He told us what he didn't do, but he didn't really answer the deva's question. So what he did say is that he did not push forward and he did not stay in place. So these could be looked at as two extremes that we can avoid in the effort that we make in our practice. And skillful effort might be all the territory in between these two extremes. And perhaps, you know, we can't peg it down, but we can get skillful at seeing when we've fallen into one of these extremes and to adjust our practice. 
I'm reading a book right now of ser sermons by Martin Luther King Jr. And um, the first, and the book's called The Strength to Love, which I think is a lovely title. And he talks about how on the spiritual path we need tough-mindedness and gentle-heartedness. And this seems helpful for me as far as looking at the question of effort. Tough-mindedness might be this willingness to see the truth, a willingness to put forth some effort, perseverance, diligence, and we need a certain strength of mind to do that. That's what I think of this tough-mindedness, a strength of mind. But we need that balanced with gentle-heartedness. Gentle-heartedness knows how to practice, you could say, with a kind-hearted awareness that really has the intention to meet experience with kindness rather than judgment. The intention to meet experience with a graceful acceptance. So we'll be touching back in on this later in the talk, but tough-mindedness combined with gentle-heartedness. But let's go back to the sutra for a minute, the two extremes to avoid, the extreme of staying in place and the extreme of pushing forward. So staying in place might mean making no effort in our lives to develop spiritually or insufficient effort. I think you already all know this, that if we don't make any effort, our minds and our hearts kind of ramble on in their usual way, and it can be troublesome. It's probably why you're here. You know, if we do nothing, our, our, or we can you know, sink and drown in the stories of our mind, lost in difficult emotions, reactive. Or we live disconnected from ourselves and our experience and we don't have much chance to develop wisdom. So the same old way, uh, staying in place clearly doesn't lead to freedom. We, we do have to do something if we wish to find freedom of heart and mind. We have this precious opportunity as human beings and fortunate human beings, all of us here are fortunate, um, to practice. There's a story that I like from, um, it was, it's from a book called Buddhist Acts of Compassion. And um, it's a story about Kempo Rinpoche, a very um, famous Tibetan uh, master who's now passed away. So he's talking about the first time he went to the beach. This might be a good winter story. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> he said, so it, this is actually that Lama Surya Das um, donated this story. He says, so it must have been the first time Kempo had seen the beach and observed exactly what Westerners do there. When he came back to the monastery, he began to give us Dharma teachings about the eight worldly pitfalls, pleasure and pain, loss and gain, fame and shame, praise and blame. And suddenly then he started talking about the beach and how he and Tokel had gone to the very edge of the ocean. It was so big, he said, in almost childlike awe, calling it something like King Trident's house, the house of the king of the ocean. And then he excitedly described what he had seen. 
There were these people there. Instead of sitting and meditating or doing yoga, these people were just lying there, almost naked and doing nothing. And they, when they were tired of lying there, instead of doing something, they just turned over. And then they lay there again for another few hours. Kempo was truly, genuinely perplexed. In retrospect, he almost sounded as if he were out a third rock from the sun, the TV show about aliens coming down to Earth. Why were they doing that, he asked over and over. Though he couldn't understand it, he had so much compassion for them. How could they waste their precious human life, human existence, he continued. This life that is so short, so tenuous, so precious, so valuable, so necessary. A life not to be squandered, but to be used impeccably and usefully for the benefit and welfare of all. Not just to lounge around all day in the hot sun like a big sleeping lizard. Kempo was sincerely impassioned now. I just wanted to go wake them up. Then he had noticed there was a big white chair about 50 meters away, obviously the lifeguard's post. But there were two young people sitting there, he said, so I couldn't go up there. But I wanted to badly because I wanted to climb up there and announce to everybody it was time to wake up. So, our precious life and our opportunity to practice. So staying in one place on retreat might mean getting too comfortable and not stretching at all. And we can check this for ourselves. We want to stretch some. It's like doing yoga. If we do yoga and we never stretch at all, we don't grow, we don't deepen our yoga practice. But if we stretch too much, then we can actually hurt ourselves. So it's learning to stretch a bit out of our comfort zones, but kindly with a sense of love, metta. Stretching is its own reward. When we stretch, we actually feel good because we don't limit ourselves. It's very satisfying. We gain self-respect and confidence when we stretch in our practice. In fact, it's said that one of the roots of virya is strength. And this confidence adds fuel to our meditation. Very satisfying. And when we do stretch, then it's good to look at the result. Was it helpful or was it not? Did it help to deepen our practice or did it put us out of balance? So we find this place where we can stretch with enthusiasm. We can become curious about where our edge might be that we limit ourselves and then see if we can hold more. We can also translate virya as diligence, which sometimes might be a better word for some of us than effort, because effort, sometimes we hear that word and we're already going, we're already doing something that's uh, more like whirling, uh, pushing forward. So diligence is just that kind of the keep, the keep going quality, the, the willingness to show up on the cushion and walking, and, and this intention to be present aware. You can't control whether the intention comes um, to fruition, but we can make it. We can
can make it anyway. It's kind of like the story this morning that I told the chap, chap, chap of the tree, just keep going. Dear Vamsa calls, um, says what we do in meditation is like hens sitting on their eggs, a kind of steadiness and patience. Nothing apparently happening, but eventually the eggs hatch. Ajahn Amaro calls uh, practice diligent effortlessness. I like the word wholeheartedness. There's a sense that um, appropriate effort has, is, has a wholehearted quality. So there's that really putting ourselves into it, and yet the word heart's in there, so that there is a sense of kindness and gentleness in that effort. Perseverance, it's another way to look at effort. Steady, sustained application of energy. My partner and I like to go hiking, and um, we have two different ways of hiking. So his way is he likes to um, hike kind of fast and and hard, and then he stops and he rests for a while. And um, I'm a plodder. I like to just plod along, but not take breaks, especially when you're thinking of like going up a mountain. I just go plod, plod, plod. So for hiking, probably both of those styles work just fine. But for meditation, my way's better. The plod, plod, plod way. So it's better not to just try too hard and then wear ourselves out, but to just actually keep a nice, gentle continuity, perseverance to our practice. And then sometimes it is skillful to back off. Sometimes we find that we are getting too tight and too wound up by the kind of energy that we're making or the effort that we're making. And then taking a walk is a great idea. And you can do that mindfully. Or bringing in some expansiveness to our practice, finding something pleasant to um, look at or to enjoy mindfully, like to bring energy and lightness into our practice. So effort should, shouldn't feel tight. It shouldn't feel um, like drudgery. If it does, then it's sometimes helpful to get some balance in there. And sometimes when we make effort in practice, we just hit our edge. This is um, not uncommon. And we just keep, we keep going. I think some of you know that I teach in Burma um, sometimes practice and teach in Burma in January in um, a monastery on the banks of the Irrawaddy River in the northern part of Burma. And in January, it's um, the dry season is starting and the river is starting to drop in levels, in the level of the water. And there's um, a lot of boats use the river, for barges, boats use the river. It's like a little bit of a river highway. It's a major transportation route. And um, the sandbars are very tricky in this river, and especially as the level's dropping, the sandbars shift. And so 
when we teach there, it seems like about every other day um, a barge or a boat gets stuck on a, on a sandbar. And so we'll be sitting in the hall and then we'll hear this, you know, and like the, the boat will try one direction and then it'll try another direction and then they'll get some other boats to try to help. And sometimes it goes on for quite a while and um, they have to try a number of things. And sometimes it even seems like they'll never get unstuck. But they always do. And sometimes that makes me think of yogis in our practice and how sometimes you get into these places that are, you know, you get stuck somewhere and you try one thing and you try another and maybe you get a little frustrated and um, it gets hard, but you keep going and eventually you get unstuck. Diligence. So when we look at, um, we're still looking a little bit at staying in one place. We, we look at like what, we look at the challenges in our practice as stretching our comfort zone, uh, stretching what we can hold. And so practice, as you know, isn't always comfortable, right? But those places that are hard and challenge us are actually where we stretch. A number of years ago, I went to Burma to practice. I had not been there for many years. I practiced there in 87, and then I hadn't been there for many years. And um, I knew it was going to be challenging because I have a very sensitive body, a sensitive system, and I, I was thinking it was possible that um, it would be challenging. But I wanted to go because actually I felt like for me, practice in the United States had gotten too easy. It was almost like too comfortable, and I wanted to, to challenge myself. So um, I went to Burma, and it was very challenging. Um, when I got there the first day, uh, so we all have these little kutis, little huts. And so the first day I got there, I had my little um, kuti, but um, they had this big cabinet in it that had mothballs in it, and that's like not so great for my system. So I tried to get the cabinet out, and then I pulled my back out while I did that. And then um, they showed us the room where we were having this seminar, and they had just painted all the floors with cement paint. It was a new building, oil-based cement paint, which is like not so good for my system. And then um, what else happened? Oh, yeah, so I have a little, I can get some asthma sometimes. And my kuti had all the smoke from the village coming up. So I started to get a little nervous about this point. And um, by the way, Burma is a great place to practice. So, and I love it there. So don't get the wrong um, idea. So then that night, they um, had this big celebration for all these monks that were taking ropes and... Um, the music, I think they might have stopped at between 2 and 4 a.m. They get these big loudspeakers because they don't have, you know, nobody has like stereo, so they rent huge trucks with loudspeakers. And <laughs> so at this point, I was really starting to wonder if I was going to survive. And um, it was all in the first day. And then I, it took five airplanes to get there. So, and they didn't have email or anything like that at the monastery. So, it didn't look like, you know, I could just take off and leave. And so I started to have a lot of panic. I was really, um, really kind of freaked out by the whole situation. And 
you know, it took, in a couple of days, you know, I finally realized I, I was, this looked like it was going to be my retreat, was panic. And so I said, okay, if panic is this retreat, sign me up, I'm going to do it. You know, and I got really interested in panic. I got interested in how it like, it goes in waves, it like goes up like this, and then it goes down, it's like riding the waves of the ocean, and I got interested in what the mind does with panic, it, 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 it tells very, very, well, there's lots of identification with the stories, so that's for sure, they're very, you know, it's, and, it, and it skips kind of the whole rational part of your brain, panic just goes right into um, these very, very firm stories, and so it was one of the best retreats for my practice. It was really empowering. And after that, I was like, okay, I can do panic, that's all right. I know how to do panic. And that I didn't have to be limited then by that. So when we, when we hit our edge, when we hit those sandbars, or when we... Um, when we come up against um, difficult things in our practice, that's what makes us strong. Of course, it's not much fun, but it's what uh, stretches what we can hold. And, and in that way, stretches the freedom of our hearts and our minds. So moving on. Um, So we have to make some effort. We can't stand still. But then we might go to the other extreme of pushing forward. And so I think of pushing forward as all the territory of efforting, of trying too hard, of using our will too forcefully, of striving, expectation, trying to make something happen in our practice. And when we push forward, we exacerbate the toil and the turmoil in our minds. The Buddha said that he was whirled about. In other words, he was more agitated by pushing forward. So one way we might try to um, push forward is to try to force concentration. So, for example, to make our mind, our attention stay on the breath or our anchor to force it to stay. And if you've tried that, you've probably noticed it doesn't work so well. So we can develop concentration by letting go of stories in our mind and coming back to our breath, returning to our breath, but we can't force it. And actually, and one of the numerous paradoxes of meditation, the more we strive in our practice, actually the more disconnected we, we become, the more we are taken further away from connection with our experience. It's kind of interesting. It's like if we, we try with that kind of energy, we actually disconnect from what's really happening. And that striving can hide um, craving and aversion, which is really what's going on when they're striving. It's kind of unseen craving or aversion. a Zen story about how this takes us further away. It's from um, Philip Kaplow, Awakening to Zen. 
Some of you may know the story of the Zen master who was asked by a student how long it would take him to get enlightened. The master said, about 15 years. The student said, what, 15 years? Well, it might take 25 years in your case. It would take 25 years in my case? On second thought, it would probably take 50 years. How vividly this illustrates a fundamental point. Pains and pressures often come up because of an over-eagerness in practice. Not an over-eagerness for the Dharma, but an over-eagerness to get something out of practice and to get it very quickly, to get it and run, so to, spe- so to say. So right effort means putting forth full energy without striving. And how do we do that? It's actually a kind of koan, to use a Zen again, it's a kind of koan in our practice. And a lot of us have to do some striving to understand this. Most of us, I think, have to do some of this pushing forward to understand um, what it is. And, um, you know, sometimes we have to get kind of wound up tighter in knots or just get a headache and, and start to learn how that energy feels. It's actually a great exploration in practice is that striving energy. How do we recognize it? Each of us can find a way to understand and recognize it when it comes in. And what often happens in practice is that we see more and more subtle manifestations of striving. In our earlier practice, it might be really obvious, but then... um, as we practice more and more years, it actually can be really subtle. It can be just the subtle thought that my practice should be different than it is. That the moment should somehow be different than it is. There's a a striving in there. I look out for the word should or shouldn't in my meditation practice. It's, 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 It's a key sometimes that striving's happening is like, oh, this shouldn't be happening, or this other thing should be happening. And you can use it as a little mindfulness bell to um, notice where you might be then making effort that's a little too tight, that isn't quite balanced. Striving can also kind of um, imply a certain incompleteness or something missing um, or a feeling of inadequacy. Sometimes it comes out of this feeling that we're not good enough or that we somehow need fixing. I think this is deeply ingrained in our culture, this sense that we need, to, we need constant improvement or we're not trying hard enough. I can't remember if I shared this when I was here in um, December, but if I did, I'll share it again. I, um, when I travel, sometimes I like to entertain myself by reading the, the magazines in the seat pockets because it kind of lets me know what's going on in the mainstream. And um, 
So I, when I went to Burma a couple of years ago, this is, or no, it was last year, last January, this is what I found. It has a picture of two beautiful women. And it says, your prettiest you. Renowned makeup artist Bobby Brown believes women should, quote, look and feel like themselves, only prettier and more confident, end quote. Look and feel like themselves, only prettier and more confident. Well, that's a little bit of a trap, isn't it? Um, it, I think it kind of sums up something about our culture and what we've inherited as far as driving goes. There is a sense we should just be ourselves, and yet that's not good enough. We should be better somehow. And for men, there's a, there's a similar one. It could be only stronger and more confident. And I think that, um, you know, that inheritance of that kind of attitude uh, can go into the striving very easily for many of us. And then sometimes striving can just be this subtle, like leaning into the next moment. Like there's somewhere besides for this moment that, that we're going to find happiness or peace or, or where we should be. And sometimes um, there's this, it's like the striving masks this craving and encouragement of a strong sense of self. It's like it strengthens a sense of I and me, the striving does. If we're too determined to change, it, it actually can just be another form of self-absorption. And it can have a bit of a hard-hearted quality rather than the gentle-heartedness that I mentioned. I think that loving-kindness practice, our metta practice, which I'm pretty sure you're all familiar with, can really help us develop that gentle-heartedness side of the equation that Martin Luther King Jr. mentioned. It can help us to challenge the notion that practice can be developed through some kind of aggressive will or that we need to fix ourselves. There's a place for healthy determination, but that's more about diligence. I know that when I first um, practiced, for a number of years I would say even, I thought that practice could be willed, that somehow I could use the force of my will to make things happen, or the force of my will to really to find freedom of mind. That was, I didn't realize what I was doing, but that was basically my orientation. And, and through metta, I would say that I learned something completely different. About eight years into my practice, I, I felt like I really could see that I was suffering a lot, but I, I didn't see the way out of it. I felt quite stuck. In fact, I was more aware that I was suffering than ever, but it wasn't really moving anywhere. So I went to my teacher at the time, and I'm like, what can I do? I was, I was feeling a little... Desperate, I would say. And so um, he said, do a metta retreat. 
And at that point in my practice, I didn't like metta meditation at all. Um, I actually skipped it when they would do it in the hall. And so this was not good news to me. Um, But I was desperate, so I decided to try it. And the next um, fall, I did a two-month metta retreat. And it completely changed my practice. It was... um, Metta is such a beautiful quality because it makes the heart both strong and gentle at the same time. It combines that tough-mindedness and the um, gentle-heartedness because it really makes a heart strong enough to be able to be with the truth and yet gentle enough that we can be with the truth. (laughs) We need both. And what I learned through the metta practice was that um, that we learn about freedom of mind not through will, but actually through softening into the truth of life. I was quite surprised. I thought that we had to do it with will, and I was surprised to find that we do it with loving kindness. So metta makes our hearts strong enough to be able to bear reality Reality's tough. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it can be kind of intense. T.S. Eliot said, most humans can't bear very much reality. Practice helps us to be able to bear more. And metta makes the kind of conditions in our heart and our mind where we, we feel able to do that, where we feel able to be present. Metta creates relaxation and safety and confidence. And that's why we need it in our practice. A kind-hearted awareness. Or as mindfulness is sometimes called a non-judgmental attention. So that wish to understand, and this really helps with balanced effort, that wish to understand rather than to judge our experience. So we can check um, the attitude related to the effort that we're making in our practice. We can check, are we curious and interested? Or do we find ourselves tight and striving? Are we making more effort than what is needed? And what's behind that? Or are we not applying ourselves as much as we can? And what can we change? seeing how much I can get through here. So ultimately, effort and energy is a balancing act. And the way we work with effort is we notice when it's off and we adjust. The Buddha compared it to holding a bird in the hand to try to hold the bird just with the right amount of effort. So if we hold the bird too tightly, then we crush it. 
but if we hold the bird too loosely, it flies away. So what's, what's the right balance? If we hold our practice too tightly, we crush it. And if we hold it too loosely, it gets away. So finding that, just that right balance. And, um, and we don't expect that we always have it right because conditions change. So adjusting our effort is really just an ongoing part of practice. So I thought it might be helpful a little bit to look at the various experiences we have in life and in practice, it's the same thing, um, and how this, this not staying in one place and not pushing forward might manifest. So for example, with thoughts, that's one of the objects of meditation. It's one of the things that happens in life. And what would those two extremes be like and what would be the middle be like? So the extreme of um, staying in place would be just to let our thoughts run wild and not to really pay any attention to doing anything about it. It's really one of the more amazing things in life, how we believe our thoughts. You know, without it, staying in one place might be just as automatic believing our thoughts. I mean, we believe things that if people told us, we would never believe it. But because it's our thought and we're lost in it, we believe it. I read a psychotherapy magazine recently that said that they did these studies and found that people have about 60 to 70,000 thoughts a day and that 99% of them are the same as the day before. That seems high, but maybe it's true. Um, but the, thought, the point is that if we don't pay any attention, our thoughts have a rather, um, they kind of, they go in the same grooves. So then we might go to the opposite side. We might try to stop them. That would be the pushing forward. So we might try to um, just not think. But that leads to tension. It's impossible to force the mind not to think. There can be a healthy place sometimes to say no to certain thoughts that are very um, destructive or very unhelpful, but to try to get ourselves to not think doesn't tend to work. Really, we don't need to get rid of thoughts. That's not the goal of practice. But what we can learn and what's very helpful is to not be identified with them or not to believe them so that they're not so sticky, so that there's lots of space around them. When there's more space and less identification with our thoughts, then, well, we can realize which thoughts are worth thinking about and which aren't. I think that's one of the ways that thoughts have changed for me in practice, is that I have much more capacity now. If I'm thinking about something, be aware and say, hmm, is this helpful or not helpful to think about? Some things are helpful to think about. A lot of things aren't. And, um, and more of ability to say, you could say, to choose what I want to think about. So just, and, and that's what we, we, when we learn not to identify with thoughts, it's like they lose some of their stickiness. 
And obviously I still have sticky thoughts sometimes and I work with them, but, but uh, much less than before in general. That's what we can hope for, not to get rid of thoughts, but not to get stuck. Or another thing we work with in practice is physical sensations, especially the painful ones. Those tend to be the more problematic. And staying in place might be that we just always try to avoid pain or we deny that it's part of life. Certainly we should take an aspirin if we have a headache, but to deny that pain is part of life is not really going to help us be with life as it is. I was sitting the other day and um, I had this part of my back hurt and so I was kind of moving around a little bit trying um, to get it not to hurt and then I was suddenly it took me a little while to realize oh I'm resisting pain you know it's like that conditioning so strong right and then I just like I relaxed into it and I was like oh this is okay and that resisting right that always resisting pain leads to restlessness you could say that's staying in place and it doesn't work But then sometimes we push our bodies way beyond their limits. That could be pushing forward. We don't respect the limits of our of our of our body. Perhaps we sit cross-legged when we really shouldn't. Or um, like now, I only sit cross-legged once or twice a day because that's all my knees can do. Um, So that that that's not so helpful either. But what's balanced in the middle is some curiosity about pain, what it is, how we can have peace in life even though there's pain exists. And we do it with a balance. We explore it with a balance, not so much that we wither the mind and the energy and deplete our resources, but as much as we can stay interested and then we move away, move away when, when the mind starts withering. When it's, when, it, when it's tiring, we move away. That's the middle. How about emotions? Another thing that we work with in practice. So standing still would mean we wallow in emotions, we get lost, we believe them, we act out, or even repressing them. That's still a way of not dealing with them, right? Pushing forward might mean trying to get rid of the emotions that we don't like. Barry Majid, a um, a Zen teacher, and I think he's in New York City, he talks about our secret practice, and he said that's how we use our practice um, to try to purge ourselves of what we don't like. He said we can become spiritual anorectics. Practice becomes a way of purging ourselves of the aspects of ourselves we hate. So using practice to try to make ourselves as we think we should be. It's back to striving, really. And there's actually a kind of an aggression to that when we, when we use practice to try to get rid of the parts of ourselves we don't like. There's an, there's, it's really an aggression against ourselves. And it's not so useful. 
That's actually aversion. It's, it's um, aversion manifesting. So that would be pushing forward. What's the middle way or in between those two extremes with emotions might be learning how to be with them with attention, with mindfulness, with awareness. And being with them in the body is really helpful. Can we anchor in the body and allow? Again, kind of expanding what we can hold, stretching what we can hold. And then backing off again if we get, if the mind starts to get too reactive or overwhelmed or withered, then we, we back off. Balance. I've been studying Qigong um, for a few years now, and um, I've learned a lot about effort from, from my Qigong classes. When I first started Qigong, I thought it was excruciatingly slow. I still think that. <laughs> the first class I took was seven weeks um, long, and mostly it was how to stand. And, um, and, and a lot of the instruction was about relaxing the back of the knees. And it's really interesting because relaxing the back of the knees, it's really, it's like about surrender. And that's part of effort is this kind of um, surrender to the way things are. Or the, it's a relaxing into the way things are. So relaxing into our practice is, is helpful effort. And then they have this rule in Qigong called the 70% rule. And basically, you're, you're um, instructed to only um, do 70% of the stretch that you could do. And at first, so when I first started Qigong, I thought, I'm kind of not a 70% kind of gal. I'm a kind of 100, 110% kind of gal. So I thought, well, that applies to everybody else, but not me. And so I thought, I can do like 90 or 95%. That was my um, uh, conclusion. And so I would, I would do that. But then what I, st- I really started to learn at one point is that when I tried to do 90 or 95%, that I was actually trying to go around... Um, the emotional learning that com- comes from the Qigong, from that, the kind that I practice. I was trying to avoid emotions. And um, that when I did 70%, then I couldn't bypass. Then I actually had to feel what was going on. And, and so it's a great kind of analogy to what happens with um, uh, emotions in practice, that when we have too much energy with them, there's too much um, yeah, just too much will or energy, that often what we're trying to do is to go around them or get rid of them or bypass them. And so you can try the 70% rule with emotions in, um, in your practice and, and see what happens. Because bypassing ultimately doesn't, doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't help us to learn how to to be with life, it doesn't lead to freedom of heart and mind. Basically, all of our effort leads to uh, effortlessness. 
which is a kind of relaxation into the present moment or present experience that doesn't include any resistance. So it's kind of another paradox that all of our effort leads to effortlessness. And that the clearest seeing comes out of this deep relaxation of effortlessness. Effortlessness is really another way of saying um, resting in the present moment or um, non-resistance to what is. So there's a kind of deep relaxation that comes out of that that leads to the clearest seeing. It's said that the Buddha, um, he, did, he tried ascetic practices for many years, which would be a form of pushing forward. And um, at one point, he, he recalled a time as a child that he had sat under a tree with ease and a kind of childlike natural wonder that was just present with what was happening. And that 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 moment, that that experience of remembering that helped him to understand what what uh, skillful effort was in practice, and he abandoned the ascetic practices and and um, started to practice with more ease, and that's what led it. It said to his his final enlightenment. So we find within us a kind of joyful effort or joyful curiosity and energy that's full of wonder and that isn't trying to get anywhere, but is able to rest in now, free of wanting something else, free of anxiety or expectation. So we could call this a kind of joyful effort. And so we find that meditation practice actually takes both more and less effort than we thought. I would say it takes more effort because of the tenacity of old conditioned patterns that can take a long time, as we were talking this morning about, you know, sometimes things come back over and over and we have to keep repeating to understand. So practice can take incredible intention, intentionality and perseverance. That's the more effort than we thought. But the less effort than we thought is, is to see that striving is too much effort that using our will aggressively or too forcefully is too much effort, that we can relax into our practice and that that brings the most balanced effort, and that we can let our practice actually be simple and let awareness do the work. We're often trying too hard to do the work when actually awareness can do it if we just let it. So we have not pushing forward through uh, striving and not standing still and sinking. So what's in between? This is our uh, ongoing journey of discovery of right effort. Certain kind of perseverance. I'll finish with a talk from, uh, not a talk, a poem from Patachara, one of the early nuns of the, of the Buddhist lineages. And um, what I like about this, it's an enlightenment poem, so um, that was a, 
a common practice in that time. And uh, it shows a certain perseverance and diligence that, uh, and relaxation, at, at least towards the end, and uh, maybe it can be an inspiration to us. She had a rough life, by the way, before she practiced. She lost a lot, came to practice. It says, when they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth, when they care for their wives and children, young Brahmins find riches. But I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bath water spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell, checked the bed and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. She just kept at it. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.